Good morning, church. My name is Kristen Kelly, and my family and I have been here for just about a year. If I haven't met you yet, would you come introduce yourself to me after the service? I'd love to get to know you. Today, I'll be reading from Psalm 119, verses 105 through 112. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. I am severely afflicted. afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Accept my free will offerings of praise, O Lord, and teach me your rules. I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. Thank you, Kristen. Because I pace, I'm going to move these back. Although I might have a chance at $10,000 if I wipe out on stage. So that could be fun. So, so last week, uh, we, we did a, a whirlwind tour through uh, the, the early years of the reign of Saul. And I opened up the message last week by referencing that old Geico commercial uh, that, that talked about uh, horror movies. And it, the, the tagline in the commercial was, when you're in a horror movie, you make bad decisions. It's what you do, right? So then we talked about how Saul was pursuing bad goals. And when you have bad goals, just about every decision you make sends you in the wrong direction. And we saw over and over again that Saul makes bad decisions. It's kind of what he does. And so that was what we observed as we looked at Saul's life. Uh, Saul had, had spiritually bad eyes, and he constantly let his vision problem uh, lead him to destructive behavior. Um, but there, there, there's this, this king that's coming a few years after Saul. In fact, he's, he's David's son, Solomon. Solomon was another guy who made a lot of bad decisions. For as wise as the man was, considered to be the wisest man ever, he made a lot of bad decisions. Now, when I think about that, what hope do we have, right? We fools, what are we going to step in, right? Okay, but as I, was, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about Solomon. And if Solomon could have just looked back at the early days of his father David's life, maybe he could have avoided some of the mistakes he made. So we have the book of Ecclesiastes, which we went through last year, I believe, or the year before. And we, we talked about how all these things that Solomon, David's son, pursues, at the end of his life, he says, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. It's just a vain chasing after the wind. And at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, he offers this summary statement, and we've already referenced it a time or two uh, throughout this series on the life of David. But Solomon says this in chapter 12, verse 13, the wrap-up of the book of Ecclesiastes. After everything he's done and how, how meaningless it all was, he says this, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. 
Now, we hear this word fear, and it, it's a little off-putting. So what do we mean by this word fear? Is it about being terrified or scared? I mean, maybe a, a little bit. I think that's appropriate, all right? But this kind of fear truly understands the bigness of God, understands the power of God. And this kind of fear appreciates God's zeal for his own glory, and it appreciates God's ability to carry out his will. Okay, so when we think about the fear of the Lord, this is the kind of thing we should have in mind. Now, David, now remember, we're going through the, the life of David. David really seemed to understand this about God. He had a proper respect and reverence for who God is and what God is capable of. Now, we just read this a second ago. Kristen just read it for us, this, uh, Psalm 119, um, where he says, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. This idea here is that David understood who God was, and out of his reverence and respect for him, he wanted to know God's word. So he hid it in his heart, and he wanted to live by it. Now, when we think about knowing God's law, because that's what that reference, his law, his precepts, his commands over and over again, I think sometimes we think about God's law as being the to-do list, right? It's, it's all right, it's the Ten Commandments, it's the priestly laws, blah, blah, blah. But really, when we think about God's law, it's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's God's law. Now, though those books have a lot of laws in them, there's also a lot of story in them, too. So when we think about David knowing God's laws, it's not just about knowing which command to do and which one not to do. It's the story of God revealing himself to his creation and freeing, calling his people to himself through Abraham as they went into Egypt and then freeing his people from Egypt. So when we think about this idea of David loving God, knowing God, fearing God, it comes from this place of experiencing him in his word. So we talked about this over the last several weeks, the way he would have been drawing on God's power revealed through the law. Specifically, think about the ten, command, or the, the ten plagues and God freeing his people from Egypt. David, when he thought about fearing God and the power of God and God's ability to carry out his will, he would have had in his mind God's active work in freeing his people from Egypt. He would have had in his mind God's sustaining ability to keep his people alive in the wilderness. Not only that, now this is outside of the law, he would have known about Joshua and the conquest of Canaan and what God did to give his people a land. So when we think about David remembering the law, it's not just about his precepts. It's not just about God's commands. It's about knowing how God is able to sustain his people and deliver his people and accomplish his will. That's what David was drawing on as he gave us Psalm 119, this long poem dedicated to the, to the law of God and how good that was. So David had this healthy fear of who God was. He was in awe of him. He honored him and revered him and respected God. And that fear did not make David cower. 
That's important, though perhaps he should, because God is awesome. But it didn't lead him to cower. Instead, that fear and understanding of who God is led David to worship, and it led him to devotion. So when we think about David being a man after God's own heart, these are the kinds of things that we should draw on. David, as far as a human goes, was able to understand who God was. And this fear and this wisdom that came from that led David to want to follow God with his whole heart. Now think about, think about the story of David and Goliath, which we covered a couple weeks ago. David gave the victory to the Lord. He knew it was going to be the Lord who would sustain him in that battle. He knew that God was big and God was powerful and he would deliver him. So David rested in the security that God was going to accomplish his purpose and his will. David kind of had uh, the same mindset that Paul talks about in uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 31, where Paul says that if God is for us, then who can be against us? David seemed to really understand that. If I'm on God's side, if I want the same things he wants, then who can be against me? Now, hear me here. When you have this kind of faith, when you really believe in God that way, then you want to do what God says more than anything else. When you really believe God is that big, when you really believe God can accomplish anything he says he's going to accomplish, then what you want to do is find out what God is doing and you want to go do that because that's, that's going to succeed. That's where victory is going to be. Now, maybe, maybe you do that a little bit because you're, you're scared of what would happen if you disobey, but mostly you obey and seek the Lord because you have full confidence that God is going to succeed in whatever he sets out to do. Now, if you have that kind of confidence in God, then any rational person would always want to see what God was doing and he'd want to go do that. And the last thing you'd ever want to do is stand in the way of God accomplishing his will. Amen? Man, you want to get run over? Stand in the way of God trying to accomplish his will. You will not stand. God's will will stand. So a rational and reasonable response to faith like that is twofold, all right? Now follow me here. The first thing you're going to do is you're going to want to keep God's general commands just like Solomon mentioned in Ecclesiastes and just like David said in Psalm 119. If you really believe that, first and foremost, you're going to say, I want to follow God's commands. I want the things that he's written down, I want to do them. But here's the next part, and this is where we're going to spend most of our time today. Not in the nitty-gritty of all the legalese of the, of the Old Testament, but this. You're also going to want to seek God in your daily decisions and life. What am I supposed to do today? Where am I supposed to go? What has God called me to do? Where has he sent me? How do I obey God's general will beyond his specific will in the commandments? I know God doesn't want me to kill my neighbor, right? But do I know if I'm 20 years old 
who I'm supposed to marry? Do I know what God wants me to do for a career? Do I know where I'm supposed to live? Am I seeking God for my daily decisions? Those of us who are a little older, are we saying, does God guide me in my business practices? Do I do business with this company instead of that company? Do I sell here? Do I buy there? Whatever these situations may be, are we looking for God to guide our steps in our daily life? And what we're going to see here is that throughout David's life, he is committed, committed to seeking God's will for these things that maybe lay outside of God's specific commands. Saul, on the other hand, seems to uh, uh, be less concerned about following God and obeying him and more concerned about justifying his own actions. So David is inquiring of the Lord, and Saul is trying to defend his own actions. Now, I'm going to take on something today I've never done before. This is a new goal for me. I'm tackling 11 chapters today. So just take that seatbelt, buckle in, we're going to fly, and by the end of the day, I promise, Saul will be dead, and we're going to finish 1 Samuel today. So let's jump back in the story and pick up uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 20. Now, if you'll remember where we are in the book of 1 Samuel, uh, Jonathan has been kind of between his dad and David. David is his best friend, and Saul is his dad. And and Jonathan has kind of been defending his dad to David. He doesn't really want to kill you. He doesn't really. And David's like, yeah, he does. All right, so here in chapter 20, verse 33, uh, Jonathan is finally convinced that Saul wants to kill David. And and, and in fact, the, the quote here is that he was determined to put David to death. So Jonathan comes, and he warns David that Saul is truly committed to killing David. And and David and his little band of men just start running. They say, see ya. David and Jonathan have a hug, and and David and his men are gone. And they come to a little town called Nob, and they visit the priest there. And while they're visiting the priest, David and his men, they just got out of town. They just left. They ran. They were hungry. And they go to the priest there in Nob, and they say, hey, can we have any food to eat? And the priest says, all I have is the bread that's the bread of presence that goes before the Lord. I don't don't have any bread. And he says, well, can we have that? And and the priest says, well, have you kept yourself from women? Yes. Okay. And so the priest lets David have the bread. Now, that's a whole sermon we could get into on its own, and we just can't get into the weeds today because we're covering 11 chapters. Okay? So he gives the bread, and they eat. And then David says, hey, but we don't just need bread. I need a sword. And he goes, well, I don't have any sword. All I have is the sword of Goliath. David's like, that'll do. What do you mean you don't have a sword except for the sword of Goliath? Give me that one. That's a good sword. I've used it before. It cuts clean, right? (laughs) So David gets the sword of Goliath. And then we find something out a couple chapters later in uh, chapter 22, verse 10, that this priest did something else for David. This priest inquired of the Lord for David. Now, what I want you guys to understand is that David is on his way out of Dodge, Saul's going to kill him again. And he stops at the priest of Nob. He gets bread and he gets a weapon, but he also seeks instruction of what to do next. So what I want to put in your minds is as David is fleeing Saul on the same level of importance as a weapon to defend himself 
and as food to sustain him for a little while, he puts inquiring of the Lord on that list. How important is inquiring of the Lord, seeking the Lord in what he ought to do? It's right up there with food and defense. That means it's pretty important. So the Lord in his direction uh, uh, leads him away. And he, David, and his men go to a, a town called uh, Abdullam. But something interesting happens. Saul and his men, Saul finds out about David going to Nob. And when he gets there, when, David, when, when Saul comes, he finds out about this. And, and Saul, this is fascinating to me. Saul kills the priest for helping David. Saul kills the priest's family. Saul kills everybody in town. And Saul kills all the livestock. Now, do you guys remember back to chapter 15 as to why Saul lost his kingdom? Because when he went out at the command of God to fight Amalek, he did not kill all the livestock. He did not kill everyone in town. He disobeyed God, did not do what God said. But now here he is in his jealous rage, only looking at himself, and what does he do? Kills everybody. Who's his God? Is it not himself? He can't obey the Lord, but he can obey his jealousy and in vengeance kill everyone. So David got out ahead of that, and he, he flees to the caves of uh, Adullam. And we have this verse while he's there in Adullam. It says this in chapter 22, verse 2. It says, everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander, that's David, became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. What we see happen is David flees, he obeys God, and he comes to this town of Adullam. And there God sends him people, outcasts in society, people who were living on the edge. And they come to David, and David becomes their commander. God begins to send him a little army. Now, these, these caves of Adullam where, where David and his men were, were staying was outside of a, another town called Keilah. And both these towns are in the land of Judah. And this particular region of the land of Judah is right next to the land of the Philistines. And the Philistines began to raid the city of Keilah. Now, when we think of armies going to battle against each other, in our mind we think, Tens of thousands of men squaring off in battle lines. I think many of us imagine the old Roman phalanx, the square, marching in. All right, well, at this time, in this day and age, really, armies weren't that big. This would be several dozen men, maybe a few hundred men, that went on raids from one town to another. They honestly functioned more like pirates than they did an army. They would run into town. They would kill everybody they wanted. They would take all their stuff, and they would leave. Now, when there were big battles, it was really just a bunch of warlords coming together for a common goal, and that's how they got to thousands and thousands. But one city raiding another city was very common. So David and his men are hiding out in these caves, and they find out that this town of Keilah nearby is being raided by the Philistines. Now, who's there in these caves? It's a bunch of ragtag people that were discarded from the rest of their community. It was David who's being pursued by Saul, and this town is being attacked by the Philistines. How does this concern David and his men? They're all just trying to survive. But David does something. 
he inquires of the Lord what he should do. This is not David's battle, and yet he inquires of the Lord what he should do. Let's look at chapter 23, verses 2 through 5. It says this, Therefore David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Keilah against the army of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again. And the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. Now, what I, what I love about this is David sought the Lord and he obeyed what God sent him to do. He believed that God was with him. And if that's what God wanted him to do, he believed he was, would succeed. So in faith, he set out to do it. This was not his battle. This was not his battle. Yet God had called him to it, and so he did it. And God gave him a great victory. Now, if we read on, what does Saul do when he hears about what's going on in Keilah? The short answer is nothing. Until he hears that David is there. Now he wants to go to Keilah. Why? Because what he really wants to do is kill David. He doesn't care about his people. What he cares about is his own vengeance. Except vengeance for what? Because still to this point, David has never done anything against Saul except for win battles and victories for him. But Saul is determined to kill David. So he goes uh, to Keilah in order to uh, uh, kill David. Except that the Lord tells David to leave. And David gets out of town, and he and his men start running. And they run until they come to the wilderness of En Gedi. The wilderness of En Gedi. I had a chance to visit En Gedi just a few weeks ago. And let me tell you, it's a miserable place. So it's right on the edge of the Dead Sea. Now, it's called the Dead Sea for a reason. Now, in my mind, it's the Dead Sea because nothing can live in it because it's so salty. No, it's the Dead Sea because nothing is alive around it. Everything is dead. It's dead, dead, dead. Okay? So it's a great place to go and die, I guess. So uh, the wilderness of En Gedi is a spring that produces a creek, and everything is brown. Everything is brown, and then there's this little patch of green. And that, that's what you're living on, is this spring that produces this little patch of green in the midst of mountains of dry desert nothingness. We were there in late May, early June, and it was over 100 degrees. It was terrible. It's not a place you want to go. So if you want to run from people and hide, go hide where no one wants to live, right? Okay, so this is an awful hot place where water is hard to find. You've got to scrounge for it. So what do David and his men do? They do what any wise person would do when the sun is bearing down on you, scorching you. They hide in a cave. So Saul went to go find him in Keilah. They're not there. Now Saul's pursuing him all over the countryside into the wilderness of En Gedi, this, this awful, hot, terrible place. And David and his men are hiding in a cave. And Saul is pursuing them. And he goes into a cave at random to relieve himself. 
Now, there's some debate as what relieve himself means. Some believe that he was really hot and exhausted, and he went into this cave to cool down and take a nap. Others think he went in there for less savory reasons. I'll let your imaginations wander on what relieve themselves might mean. Okay, in either case, Saul found himself in this cave, and it just happens to be the cave where David and his men were hiding. And he goes in there, and he's in a vulnerable position. And David's men say to him, go kill him. The Lord has put Saul in your hands. Go and kill him. And I, I'm not going to lie. Like, that's smart. This dude's been trying to kill you for a while. He's tried lots of different ways. The Lord has served him on a silver platter. Kill him. And David said, no, I can't do that. I can't lift my hand against God's anointed. So David decides not to kill Saul, but he still wants to send a message. So he sneaks up, and he cuts the corner of Saul's robe off. Now Saul finishes whatever he was doing in the cave, and he leaves the cave. Now the thing that's interesting to me in my mind is trying to figure out how this all worked. He leaves the cave, and David just walks out and says, Yo, Saul, I could have killed you, and I didn't. You need to understand, like, the geography of this place. This is hills and valleys. These are tight crags where there's, like, not good footing. So 100 yards, a quarter mile might as well be 10 miles because you're not closing that distance at any kind of speed. The, any, any opportunity to pursue David from afar would have failed because of the terrain that they were in. So this is the exchange after David uh, cuts off Saul's robe and, and Saul finds himself away from David. It says this in chapter 24, verse 11 through 12. It says, see my father, this is David talking to Saul, see my father, and he means figuratively, not literally, it's not his dad. See the corner of your robe in my hand, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the, Lord's judge, may the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be put against you. I love Saul's response to this. After David tells him, I could have killed you, but I didn't, Saul says this, starting in the middle of verse 16, and Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And David said to, I'm sorry, and he said to David, so this is Saul talking to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Finally, Saul gets it. David's going to be the next king. And that's the end. He goes home and David becomes king a few weeks later. No, that is not how the story goes. That's how the story should go, but Saul has bad eyes he has bad goals, and he makes bad decisions. It's what he does, right? So this is Saul. Saul continues. David gets out of there. He leaves, but the feud is not over. Chapter 26 tells us that Saul got word where David was hiding again. And this time he said, I'm going to get 3,000 men, and we're going to go and we're going to take down David for good. This time, presumably, to kill him, it's over with, it's done. But David and his men caught word that Saul was on his way. 
And so David had a couple of his guys spy out where Saul was, and they found his encampment asleep. And uh, Abishai was one of the guys who was with David as they spied on Saul's camp. And we're going to jump into chapter 26, verse 8 through 12, and listen to this conversation between Abishai and David. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hands this day, and we could put in parentheses again. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will, I will not strike him twice. I mean, you can just hear this, you know, why I, I'll just get him. I'll just one time, you know, that's what I imagined in my head. But David said to Abishai, do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him. Who's going to strike him? The Lord will. Or his day will come to die. Or he'll die of natural causes. Or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. So we get to see even God's hand is in this, right? God put a, a deep sleep over all the camps so they could sneak in, steal his spear and his water jar. All right, now, what happens next? They, they wake Saul up. It says, then Saul said, and he's yelling to David, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will... No more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. So this time, the war is over, and a few weeks later, David comes to the, the capital, and now he's king. No, not this time either, right? Like, we see this. Yeah, Saul makes bad decisions. It's what he does, right? So how, how does this continue? All right, so we, we turn the page over to chapter 27, and I want you to see verses 1 and 2 of chapter 27. This is just a few verses later. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day at the hand of Saul. No matter how many times Saul says, I'm done trying to kill you, David is still convinced. Now I shall perish one day at the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than that I should escape the land escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Moak, king of Gath. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. David had been on the run from Saul, we don't know how long, 10 to 15 years, a decade? Like, I've been married 18 years now. Like, potentially, I'm just thinking back. I can't remember not being married at this point. Like, we're, we're talking about he's been running for his life that whole time. And Saul has tried to kill him countless ways. And David comes to the conclusion. I just want you to think about this. David comes to the conclusion, it's better that I go live with the Philistines than stay here. How bad does it have to be? I'd rather go live outside of my people with my enemies whom I've fought. I'd rather go live with them than continue to live this way. And this is, this is interesting because 
he lived in the Philistine country uh, in the town of Ziklag, which is a town that the Philistine king had given him. He lived there, according to chapter 27, verse 7, almost a year and a half. Almost a year and a half. Now imagine a life where you've spent a decade and a half pushing two decades on the run. And then you have a year and a half of peace. Oh my goodness. Would that not feel good? When you could go to bed at night and know that nobody's going to try to kill you in your sleep? That you don't have to just get up and pack all your gear and hightail it to a cave someplace where maybe you'd have another chance to not kill Saul? I mean, like, he finally has a chance to rest. Imagine the loyalty that would stir up in his heart, David, toward the king of Gath, toward Achish. This guy has, my king won't give me rest. This pagan Philistine king will. Man, I can imagine David feeling this sense of loyalty toward the king of Gath. Now, he wasn't that loyal, though, because he did lie to the king a lot. So David and his men became men of war, just like the Philistines, where they became raiders. And they went out and took stuff from people and, and killed people and, and stole all their goods. Now, David told the king of Gath that he was doing this in Judah, that he was terrorizing the Judahites, that he was terrorizing the Israelites. But really, really, David wasn't doing that. David was going south toward Egypt. And guess who he was attacking? Guess where he was winning all his battles? Against Amalek, the same people that Saul was supposed to destroy. Now David is carrying out God's justice and vengeance on Amalek. And these are not God's people that he is raiding, but it is God's enemies that he is raiding. And so he's storing up this wealth, and, but the king of uh, Gath believes that David is fighting against his own people. And King Achish says this uh, in chapter 27, verse 12. It says, And Achish trusted David, thinking, He has made himself an utter stench to his people, Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. Except he wasn't. He didn't actually make himself a stench to his own people because these raids were going against the people to the south. Now, this is important. Where did we start today? We were talking about how, uh, what it means to fear the Lord and keep his commands. In one respect, it means looking at God's commands and following them as they're written. But in the other respect, it means following uh, God's plan and will. It means inquiring of him and doing the things that God has called him to. So we saw throughout so far how he has inquired. But also, many times throughout the life of David, he does not inquire. And yet God still protected him. And yet God still kept him from doing harm. God kept him from killing Saul. God kept him from attacking his own people. Now what I want us to think about here is when our hearts and minds are committed to the idea of following God, when we set our hearts on obedience, when we make it a practice to follow God's laws and commands, when we make it a practice to inquire of the Lord, when we seek to please him with our actions, God in his grace and mercy often leads our steps even when we don't ask. Because our desire is to follow him. Our heart is toward following him. And what, what did we learn? His word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. He guides 
our steps as we rely on him. Now, David found himself loyal to the king of Gath. He had given him a home. And so all the kings of the Philistines get together and they decide, it's time to take down Saul. So, so David says, I'll go with you. I'll go with you to Achish. Me and my men, we'll come. We'll fight against Saul. Think about that. David finally had had it. I'll go with you. You gave me a home. I'll fight against Saul. So he goes to war, not with the Philistines against them, but in partnership with the Philistines. But God, in his mercy, in his mercy, stirs up the generals and the leaders of the Philistines, and they say, no way am I going to go to war with David. Because David will just turn on us in battle and fight with Israel instead of with us. So they kick him out of the army, and they make David and his men go home. Now, what I love about this is, again, we see, if David is going to be the king of Israel, if he truly is God's anointed, what, do we need to, what does David need to be successful as king? Nobody has anything they can say against him. God protected David from doing evil things, from doing bad things. From, so he didn't raid against his own people. He didn't kill Saul. And right now, when he had every reason to fight against Saul and the Israelites, God protected David from going to war with his own people. Isn't God's mercy great? So when, David, when it is time for David to become king, he never took up arms against his own people. And God protected him for it. Now, we're going to look at the last little episode of Saul's life. This army that David had um, been in charge of, that we're not in charge of, was going to fight with, that David left, they still go to war against King Saul. And Saul and his men are gathered. And Saul decides, oh no, this does not look good for me and my men. I know what I need to do. I need to inquire of the Lord. So Saul decides, I'm going to ask God what I should do. And when he goes to the Lord, God doesn't answer. He got no response. Listen to this in chapter 28, starting in verse 5. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets. Nothing he did would work to hear from the Lord. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And the servant said to him, Behold, there is a medium in Endor. Now I'm going to be quick here, but I want you to think about this. God would not speak to him. Now, God had spoken to him. Saul just didn't like the answer. What did the Lord told him over and over and over again? You're done. Your kingdom is going to be taken from you. What have we seen as we've moved throughout 1 Samuel? He had plenty of opportunities to give his kingdom away, but he didn't. He had bad eyes. He kept making bad decisions. It's what he does. 
And God brought him to this point now where he came to the Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord didn't answer. This, this next step, and, and hear me, if you're going to hear me on anything, this is where I need your attention. This next step reveals Saul's heart. More than anything we see, this next step reveals Saul's heart. When he didn't get the answer he wanted, he then sought his own answer his own way. And that proved he never really meant it. When the Lord didn't speak to him because he'd already told him and he didn't like the answer, he increased his sin by going after this witch and Endor. And we know he knows better because the same passage tells us that he kicked all the witches and mediums out of the, town, out of the country. That this woman happened to be in hiding. In fact, they, uh, Saul had to disguise himself when he went there because this woman was worried that Saul was going to kill her. Because he knew she wasn't supposed to be there, yet in his self-centeredness, bad decision-making, processing everything for his own ends, David goes to the witch at Endor. Now, this gets worse. When we were in Israel, we got to see this. The, the, the Israel army and the, uh, the, the Philistine army were on opposite hills. For, Dave, for Saul to have gotten to the witch at Endor, he had to get on a horse or a donkey or whatever, beast, and literally go almost a day's journey around the enemy lines, behind the enemy lines to meet with this witch at Endor. How far did he go to, to meet with this, to go into sin? He literally went behind enemy lines to where she was in order to consult with this witch. And this witch then brings up, and we, another sermon for another day, uh, the, the soul of Samuel. And Samuel speaks to Saul through the witch. And this is what Samuel says to Saul, starting in verse 16. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you, I'm sorry, has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hands of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. He's dead. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hands of the Philistines. And that's exactly what happens. Saul goes into battle, and he and his troops are routed. And Saul sees the writing on the wall. He knows he's going to lose. They're going to, they're going to torture him. It's going to be an awful death. So he decides he's going to fall on, the, on his own sword to avoid being captured, and he dies. Now, throughout the struggle between Saul and David, two things run consistently through the story. David sought the Lord, and Saul sought his own desires. David sought the Lord, and Saul sought his own desires. Saul's life is an illustration of what happens when we seek our own desires as our priority. And sometimes it's so much more subtle. I mean, Saul's life, you can just see it coming from a mile away. Bad decision after bad decision. It's not even like good storytelling where it's hidden and we don't know. No, it's like obvious. This is where it's going. In our, in our own life, it's sometimes a lot more subtle. We don't recognize it. 
how these little steps of choosing ourselves over and over again lead us further and further away from the Lord to the point that when we find ourselves at a crossroads, we double down on our sin and we go to our own version of the witch at Endor, hoping, hoping that we'll find a different answer when all along we know what's there. We know what comes at the end of our own bad choices. We know what comes at the end of our own sin. It's the same promise that found Saul, his own destruction. We know it, but we think if we look in a different place for an answer, we might hear what we want to hear. And at the end of the day, all we find is destruction. We may not, we may not find it in this life, but eventually we know that that bill will come, for the wages of sin is death. The consequence of our sin is death. Sometimes we experience those consequences in this life, but all of us have eternal consequences without Christ. But then we see David. We see David seek the Lord. Now, one thing I need to stress for you guys is that David was not perfect. David sinned. David messed up. We talked about him lying to the king of Gath. There's all kinds of ways along the, uh, along the story of David where we can see that David didn't always get it right. But David had a heart after God. He wanted to follow him. His faith, his hope was in the Lord. And we see that God works with him and shows his love to him continually and delivers him continually because his heart was toward the Lord. Now, at the same time, we cannot confuse God being with David as David living this cush, cush life. Remember where he was for over a decade, hiding in the wilderness, in caves, in the most miserable places? Like, obeying God did not lead him to health, wealth, and prosperity. Okay? He suffered while he was being obedient to the Lord. Sometimes following the Lord hurts, but he would rather be in the wilderness with the Lord than in the palace without him. And that is what God is calling us to, life with him. This is why Solomon can say at the end of Ecclesiastes, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. And God has called us into relationship with him. He has called us into relationship with him because it's better I think the real faith comes when, like David, we can believe that walking with the Lord is better than walking in, in all these riches with kings. He would rather be with the Lord in the wilderness than without the Lord on the throne. That kind of faith is what God has called us to. That's what he has called us to in Jesus Christ, that by faith we can know we have peace with God. Did Saul have peace with God? No. He was constantly at war with God. We have an opportunity to have peace with God through Jesus Christ. By faith in him, we can have forgiveness of our sin, and we can walk in the newness of life that is promised in Jesus Christ, as Christ raised from the dead so we can be delivered from the consequences of sin and death and have peace with God forever. So here's my challenge to you as we end, and as, as the praise team comes, I told you to be long, you buckled in, we did it. Saul's dead. Okay, but here's, here's, my, here's my challenge to you all. Where, where do you want your hope to be? Where do you want to find your rest? 
Do you want to find your rest at the end of your own desires that only lead to destruction, which isn't really rest? Or do we trust? Do we trust that, how's that song go? Better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. Where's your hope? Where's your future? As we sing these last couple songs, this is our time to respond. However God is moving in your hearts and lives, if you want to just lay those burdens down before the Lord, it may not have anything to do with what we said today. But however God is moving, if you want to bring your needs to the Lord, you can. If you want to know more about what it is to put your faith in Jesus, you can talk to me or to a believer next to you. Let's, let's continue in worship. Thank you.